Welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the children's books we love. My name is Jody Lima, and on this twice-monthly podcast, hosted on the first and third Monday of each month, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts about their own favorite children's books. Today, I'm going to be interviewing Payal Doshi. Payal is author of the middle-grade novel, Rhea and the Blood of the Nectar, and that's her debut novel and the first book of what will eventually be three books in the Chronicles of Estranthia series. Uh, We are going to be talking about that book, as well as her favorite book for young readers, Anne of Green Gables by Ella Montgomery. Uh, But first, before we get to that, I want to make an announcement. Uh, Starting today, September 6th, I'm going to have what I'm calling a Halloween shorts contest. And this is how it goes. Uh, Do you have a Halloween story or would you like to write one? Well, here's your chance. I want you to send me your best Halloween story for children. And what I will do is I'm going to read all the stories submitted and determine what I consider the best and most Halloweenish story. Now, if your story is picked, not only will you win a signed copy of my middle grade novel Hushabai, but I will also read your story on my October 18th Dream Gardens podcast and post it on my podcast website for everyone to read. Now, here are the basic rules. Uh, first, uh, obviously, write a Halloween story for kids. Now, this story can be scary or funny or sad or sweet or silly or all of those at the same time. Whatever tone you want to take, it should have something to do with Halloween and it should be something you could read to kids. Now, I do not have a specific age range in mind, so write your story with whatever younger audience you'd like to reach. Now, the story should be no more than 250 words, so it is a bit of a challenge. Once you finish writing your story, you need to submit the story on my contact page on my podcast website. That's jleemott.com. You should include your name and email in the appropriate fields. And in the subject field, you're going to type Halloween shorts. Then you're going to copy your story along with the story title in the message field. Now, the deadline for submissions is October 9th of this year, 2021, at 12 a.m., which is midnight. And that's Eastern Time. I'm going to announce the winner on my podcast on October 18th, 2021 at 10 a.m. Eastern, as well as on Twitter. I will contact the winner in advance of that date to let them know that they've won and to request an address to send out the signed copy of Hushabai. If you have any questions about any of this, uh, the best way to ask me is to send me a direct message through my Twitter account, and that's at DreamGardensJLM. Now, if you didn't catch everything I just said, just go to, again, my podcast website, jleemott.com, and there's a page there with all the instructions. I basically just read the instructions off that page. I'll also post the contest instructions on my author page, jodyleemott.com. And with that said, I look forward to all of your spooky stories. My guest today is Payal Doshi. Her debut middle grade novel, Rhea and the Blood of the Nectar, which is the first book in the Chronicles of Estranthia, was published in June of this year. Uh, you can find more information about Pyle at www.pyledoshiauthor.com. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Pyle. Thank you so much for having me, Jody. Yeah, and I mentioned that this uh, this book, which is your debut book, just came out this year. For those who haven't had a chance to get out and read it, I haven't had a chance to read it myself, and I really enjoyed it. Can you talk a little bit of what this book is about? Sure. So, Ria and the Blood of the Nectar is the story of 12-year-old Ria Chetri, who is from Darjeeling, India. And on the night of her 12th birthday, her twin brother Rohan goes missing after they've had this big fight. And what ensues is an adventure. Uh, Ria goes and she has to visit the village fortune teller to discover clues about where Rohan has gone. And she enlists the help of her neighbor, Leela. And off they go, unraveling clues, which leads them to portal into this magical realm. There, Rhea is confronted with sort of dark secrets about her past. She has to learn to make friends. She has to battle evil creatures. Uh, She discovers secrets about her family. She discovers she has magic. And all of these things happen with a ticking uh, clock at the back where she has to save Rohan, find out why he has been kidnapped, um, and also save the realm of Astranthia, and hopefully lives to see it all. So it's really just this you know, thrilling, exciting adventure story 
with magic that has these Indian kids at the helm, something that we don't really see very often uh, in children's literature. And I would say it's a book that can be enjoyed by any lover of fantasy. And I like to say it's for eight to anyone between eight years and 99, because if you, like me, uh, are a child at heart, you would enjoy this book even if you are an adult. I've always said a good book is good for any age, no matter what. Correct. And what what was your inspiration for writing this? Where did this story idea come to you from? Did it start with the story or the character or, or the world? Or how did, how, did you, how did it come about? It kind of started a little bit character and and plot. It was really, uh, I was I was very frustrated at my job. Uh, one day I was working at a magazine publishing firm and, you know, I was writing these articles that my editor was asking me to write about every month as is the case in magazine publishing and so fed up. I was like, I just want to write something that I want to write about. Uh, I had no idea what that was. Uh, and so, you know, one weekend I just switched on my laptop thing. I'm going to write what I want to write. And I wrote these two paragraphs that had an eight-year-old girl who ran off into these forbidden woods behind her house. And there she had this slightly magical and frightening experience with a tree. And then she runs back out and she's very curious, uh, obviously afraid, but still very curious about what has happened. And that was, that was it. And it was those two paragraphs, maybe, you know, about 200 words. And I felt so happy writing that. I had never felt that kind of exhilaration before. And I was like, this is it. This is what I want to do. So it was that seed that then I expanded on. Uh, and I knew this character wanted to be, I wanted her to be this, you know, feisty kid, very curious, uh, you know, happy to bend the rules if she needs to, and that there would be something magical and mysterious in the forest. And then I started thinking about it. And then this whole, the plot and the character evolved. What was interesting is, and, and this answers why I wrote this book, is initially I wrote the whole first draft with white characters. So Rhea, my protagonist, was Rose. A brother who goes missing in the book is called Rohan, but in my first draft, he was called Bryant, and they lived in the English countryside and all that. And it was 70,000 words, and I've written all of it with white characters and in, in, you know, in a Western setting. And it was a writing teacher of mine. Um, I did this writing workshop, and uh, I read the first chapter out. This was back, I should, I should say, I should have prefaced this by saying that I'm Indian, and I grew up in Mumbai, India. I lived there my whole life. I've moved to the States only nine years ago, but my whole life I lived there. Uh, and so this was back in, in Mumbai. So my teacher in Mumbai was like, why are you writing about white characters? Why aren't you writing about Indian characters? And I kid you not, I had not thought about that even for a second uh, before. And I was actually quite annoyed by the fact that she didn't applaud my writing skill or tap me on the back by saying, oh, this is great or anything like that. Instead, she just focused on this one point. Like, who cares? None of the books I ever read had any Indian characters in them. So who cares? And it was only after I came back and I was, you know, I was mulling over it. And I was like, but why didn't I write about Indian kids? Why didn't I write about my own experiences, my own, you know, my culture, my my country, my people, uh, my daily experiences. And so then that really changed the game for me and, and pivoted this whole book. And so then my, I, I was very focused on then writing a book that was just really an all-out fantasy story with, the, with all of those elements of a you know, great fantasy adventure. There are clues in here, there are riddles in here, there's friendship, there's uh, you know, magical creatures, there is this, you know, big bad villain that, you know, all again, all of the, the, the ingredients you need for a good fantasy story, uh, but with Indian kids and simply because it just didn't exist. And even today, if you had to look at children's fiction and look at fantasy fiction, you would be able to count the number of books with South Asian characters on the cover as leads as the other, you know, uh, tertiary and secondary characters in the book, you'll be able to count these number of books on, on your hand. And Indians make up for a billion people in India alone and 18 million across the world. And, and you can still count the number of books, you know, on your hand when it comes to children's lit. And so for me, it became very important to a write a joyful story about South Asians or Indians, because 
uh, one of the wonderful things about the changing landscape of the publishing industry where uh, stories from underrepresented minorities and cultural backgrounds um, are being encouraged now. They still are, especially by publishers, the stories of pain and hardship are the ones that are more in demand because they tend to sell better and they, you know. But what I find is that equally important are the joyful stories. Those stories of, you know, finding your identity, immigration struggles, uh, maybe fleeing war, very, very important subjects. But what ends up happening is that A, you are a cultural a minority that isn't getting enough representation. And then when you do get it, it's all sad. And that's not all of our experiences. And we all, you know, regardless of which cultural background we come from, we carry the hardships of our heritage and culture, but so we also carry the beauty and the joy. And so it became very important for me to write a book that encapsulated my culture slightly. Because again, India is so vast, there's no one book that can encapsulate the whole thing. But, you know, it has a touch of Indian culture in it. Uh, it. It has these kids. And the central focus is not that they are Indian. In fact, that they're just kids. They just happen to be Indian just the same way I read books that I loved growing up that had characters that were white. who just, They just happened to be white, but I loved them. Like the book that we will talk about shortly, Anne, Anne of Green Hills. I loved Anne. Uh, it didn't matter that she was white or not white or whatever it is. Like I loved her for who she is. And that was my motivation in creating Ria and all of the characters in there is that kids across all backgrounds can read this book and relate to these characters. And be, them being Indian is just one facet of who they are, just the way that is for me. And I would assume for all of us. Who we are, you know, where we come from, our ethnicity and our race is just one facet of our personality. We're made up of so many different uh, traits. And then, yeah, and so, you know, just write this all out, fun, joyful story about a kid from India who has magic. I don't think there's another book out there that is that has an Indian kid from India that has magic. And that just like blows my mind. And yeah, and, and, and a book that everyone can relate to, not just the Indian kids. All kids want to go on adventures of some yes. kind. Yes. Yes. And I'm wondering, uh, it, it, the setting, it, it's set in uh, Darjeeling. Is there a particular reason um, of that specific setting uh, was important to set the story in? Yes. Um, so once again, with this book, I wanted to toss the stereotype out of the window, but not in a heavy-handed manner. And so Darjeeling is this really gorgeous spot in the northeast part of the country, um, and like it's mentioned in the book, it's set within these beautiful tea plantations. It's a hill station, so it's gold. You, you have the Himalayas at the background. Uh, the, the people there are wonderful. We're surrounded by Nepal and the state of West Bengal. Uh, and so they have a wonderful culture. Their food is so different from the food I grew up in, which was in Mumbai, which is in the western part of the country. And they're just, it just, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous, stunning place. And I chose Darjeeling because not too many people know of Darjeeling. If they think of India, they probably think Slumdog Millionaire, and they think of all of those wonderful scenes from that movie that they show about with Mumbai. And I would say that is exaggerated to a point, and I, but I don't disagree. Yes, some of that does exist, but we also have such beautiful landscapes that, again, nobody talks about. So I chose Darjeeling because it's a very underrated place, and I wanted to showcase that. Uh, so again, showcase a different side of India that very few people uh, might have known about. And if they did, they probably just know it through the tea. But other than that, again, they wouldn't know about So. I consciously chose that. And I love that it ties in with Astranthia, which um, I always imagined to be this very floral, verdant, lush place. And so Darjeeling provided, you know, that thread of lushness and beauty that I could carry from the earth slash India side of the story into the magical Astranthian side. I'm just curious uh, what you found more challenging it was to bring a, a very real place to life and make the reader experience or to create this world that doesn't exist except in your imagination and, and try to build that up. Uh, was one more challenging than the other or that they both have their own sort of, um, you know, <laughs> both challenges and joys in, in creating them? Oh, for, no, for sure. It was more difficult for me to create Astranthia because I really had to start from scratch. And as much as there is this, uh, the initial freedom of doing whatever it is that you want to do when you're creating a fictitious 
magical land, you kind of run into those problems where you you almost want the boundary lines. I'm like, no, I need the limitations now. And now I have to set them myself and create them myself versus Darjeeling. You know, there's, I, through pictures and research, and I even visited uh, Darjeeling after I, before I, yeah, once I finished writing my book and before I was sending it out to agents and publishers and stuff, uh, just to make sure that I had my uh, details right. I didn't have some of the some very important details I got wrong in spite of all the research I did. So I always say that if you haven't visited a place before, go visit it before you send it out to publication. But still, it was, you know, it was in, in, in the constructs of Earth and a, a real place that I could lean on and, you know, look at. And plus also, it's very, uh, it's still part of India. So there was a lot of my own experiences that I put into the book, um, even when I was describing a traffic scene or, you know, a scene at a traffic light uh, and just the, the the people around and the sights and the smells and you know uh, so that was very easy for me to draw from personal experience so for, but as Tranthi I had to create all of that from scratch and so I loved it but I was also I equally loved it and I was equally frustrated by it because there are definitely points where I'm like okay how many times can I describe a plant differently to make it seem magical and not from, you know, earth? So that was, it was definitely challenging, but then also fun because when you, when you do come across a cool idea that you can incorporate, yeah, it, you know, for someone who's creative, it's, it's definitely, it's uh, very exciting. Is there a part of the book that you can share with us? Yes, I can. I'll, I'll read a little bit from chapter 12 which is titled The Whispering Walls. Um, so at this point in the book, Rhea and her neighbor, Leela, have unraveled certain clues and they have landed, uh, portaled, in fact, into this magical realm called Astranthia. They've just landed there and they happen to befriend uh, an Astranthian native uh, called Zarantha. He's a 13-year-old barrow boy, he sells jewelry, you know, on the side of the road. He's like a jack of all trades kind of a guy. And he says, oh, I'll, you know, I'll be your tour guide. I'll help you find Rohan, this person that you're looking for. And they also befriend Apari, who is Arantha's friend. And Apari is basically the Hindi word for fairy. And, uh, and that's what she is. She's a pixie. And so the four of them decide to go to the Whispering Walls, which is this gigantic structure that whispers secrets all at once. And so it's just basically this, it's just full of sounds. But if you know how to do it correctly, which Zarantha has no idea, you could discover a secret. So they think, because all else has failed, that maybe if they go into this, into the Whispering Walls, maybe Rhea could find out something about Rohan, a secret about Rohan. So that's where we are at. Okay. A gigantic mold-ridden bud sat on a dirt road, emanating a buzzing hum. Susurrating voices rose and fell from its walls, and as they got closer, it turned into a cacophony of a thousand whispers. Sarantha led them inside without hesitating. Leela followed nervously, and Rhea's skin prickled as she trailed behind them. Once inside, the bud was musty and cool, and the whispers dulled into background static. Flula flitted along the bud's inner walls, lighting cobweb-covered lanterns placed within alcoves. The light revealed its aged facade, peeling and mottled in places. Rhea pictured people sitting close to the walls, letting go of their secrets. What do we do now, she asked. The hollowness of the bud echoed her words. Ask your questions, Zarantha said, sitting down beside her. Rhea crouched close to the wall. Have you heard of Rohan Chaitri? she whispered. The drum of voices lifted and dropped, and Rhea only heard gibberish. Judging by the quizzical looks held by the others, they hadn't picked up anything either. Is Rohan Chaitri in Astranthia? Leela asked more loudly. Flula sailed to various points on the wall, pressing her ears against it. Rhea did the same. But all she caught between the swell of voices was a random word. Golly, fuzzle, was it? Rhea tried again. Do you know if a boy named Rohan Chaitri has been kidnapped from Earth? The whispers ebbed and intensified, pounding the wall like a headache. Flula hit her fist against it, producing a faint knock. Help her, secret keeper. I demand you tell her what she has traveled all this way to know. 
But the voices went on, fighting, scratching over each other. They escalated like chants from a hundred lips. Rhea wanted to scream for silence. I'm sorry, Zarantha said, kneeling beside her. I hoped you would learn something. Rhea rested her face against the bud, defeated. They had portaled between worlds for nothing. A tear slid down her cheek and fell onto the edge of the wall. The voices went silent. Everyone ex exchanged glances except Rhea, who was too deep in her misery to notice the change. She brushed away another tear and Rhea grabbed her tear-streaked hand. Ask the question again and place your hand on the wall. Rhea caught the twinkle in her eye and did as she was told. Rohan lies locked, a raspy voice began, loud, lucid, and clear. Rhea's heart leaped with hope, but before the voice could finish its sentence, the march of whispers rose and stomped out the rest of the sentence. Flaming flintstools! Zarantha exclaimed. How did you do that? I think it's the tears, Leela said, her eyes round like chikus. Rhea wiped another wet spot on her cheek and placed her damp palm on the wall. The bud went mute. Oh, greatness, Zarantha bellowed and broke into a song. Come one, come two, come three, come all. Bequeath unto me your prayer calls. Those far and few on sincere pew. Leave behind a salt of dew. Now hear, now hear the whispers veer as wonders fall into one's ear. Sincere and in a drawl, a secret from the whispering walls. It's a rhyme every child in Astranthia grows up listening to, Zarantha said. As children, we would come here hoping to find out other people's secrets for fun. We'd leave behind drops of dew or water from seas and rivers. Nothing ever happened. So we'd piece together the words we caught and make up our own secrets. Can we try your way again? Rhea nodded. She repeated her question and touched the wall with her tear-wet hand. And that's it. It's like the idea of the, 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 the whispering uh, walls. <laughs> Yeah. Now, I, I mentioned before that this is the um, the first book in the Chronicles of Astranthia. So it makes sense that there'll be more books uh, expected. So I so this is one of a series of books, correct? Correct. This is the first of a trilogy. I'm currently working on the sequel, which is very exciting. It's a, you know, a bigger, grander version of Astranthia and where we leave the characters in this book. We conclude the main plot of the story, but there's also a slight opening for what might come. Um, so, so yeah, that's exciting. So I'm working on a sequel, which is sh scheduled to release next year in the fall, fingers crossed, and uh, the year after that, the, the the final final book. And I'm always curious about this. So I've talked to other people who uh, worked on series and how much. Um, obviously, working on it, and um, you know, I haven't. Uh, finished yet but uh I, how much of uh a sort of uh like a even a like a skeleton of a plot or a plan um and without telling me what it is do you have like a, an idea of where this is all going to end up or is that something you are going to write and discover as you go along um I, i'm just curious uh, so which or is it sort of a combination of both of those things well the funny story is is that you know especially when you're a debut author they most publishers will don't buy a series from you even if you want it to be a series because they want to ascertain if the first book does well enough for there even to be a sequel that's you know desirable to be acquired so and me also being you know a, a very naive when i started this whole process i was just so focused on ria just as the, the you know the one book and i was like well and if they want more, I'll write more. But I hadn't really thought about the whole thing. I was just so focused on selling the one book and the, the way you pitch to agents and publishers when you sell a book that you hope would be a series. If you say you describe the book and you do all of that in your query letter and then you say it has series potential. And so that's basically what I did. And, and you know, didn't think about the, sec the sequel or any of the, you know, successive books. It was only after... Uh, we were getting closer to publication of Rhea. Uh, did I have a call with my publisher? And she said, you know, we definitely want to buy the whole series. So how many books are there? And I remember going, crap, I have no idea. <laughs> and 
so I was like, oh, can I get back to you? Uh, and she was like, yeah, sure. And so, you know, I was like, oh, let me just milk this. Like, oh, let me write five books, you know, let me do this. And so I that so that's when I started to plot out the the the, the rest of the storyline. And as I was doing that, I realized, yeah, I don't think I can, you know, squeeze five books out of this story. <laughs> and so I landed on a clean three. And it was at that time that I started playing around with ideas and, you know, just thinking about where I could take this. I in this in the first book, again, I don't want to give too much away, but of course, you know, there is the, the the main villain, but there's also hints of um, you know, a mega villain, so to speak. And so I I was toying with that idea and how to introduce again, you know, higher stakes and should I bring back well, again, I don't want to say too much, but so, so it's just, you know, yeah, so that's when I started thinking about it. And so now I have a pretty solid idea of what happens in book two and a very bare bones idea of what happens in book three. And by bare bones, I mean like a, bull, a page long bulleted list of events. So just really, you know, I know the main plot twist and, and kind of how it will end, but none of the meat at all. Of, of how we would go about doing that. And so I guess I'll worry about, and I'm a very, you know, one book person. So I am not one of those people like, okay, I, you know, I, I need a break from this project. I'm not going to work on another book, which is an entirely different project. Like I, that my mind just doesn't work that way. So I'm a, even with when I'm reading, I can only read one book at a time. So after, yeah, I had that conversation and I said a trilogy. So then I went back and took my bulleted points outline bulleted outline for the sequel and then tease that out further and then further and then further and then I definitely again even when I write out my outline it's more like check posts and when I tease it out there are just more check posts but how I go from you know checkpoint A to checkpoint B just happens on the page and I like that so it's like I'm I, I, I used to consider myself more of a plotter and less of a pantser now I think I'm kind of midway almost and there's definitely magic when you, you know, I know I have to go from point A to point B, but I have no idea how they're going to do that. Uh, and sometimes that gets me to trouble, like I write myself into a dead end, but sometimes it just opens up a whole other situation or thought point uh, that I hadn't thought about in all of my hours of, you know, trying to detail out the outline. And uh, then, you know, yeah, and then I'm, run with that idea and, we, and we'll see how many of those ideas stay eventually in the final. But so, yeah, I would say that once I start writing it, it's definitely a bit of both. I imagine it must be, I assume, some sort of advantage that you, because you've already spent time in the first book building characters and building a world that now you have something, you know, sort of solid to draw upon. You don't have to vent everything out of whole cloth uh, like in the first book. Yes, for sure. But I will say that um, upon reading reviews and <laughs> having, you know, people tell me uh, about the book, uh, the two things that stand, uh, Leela, who is uh, Ria's neighbor, who then turned into her friend, uh, has, you know, turned out to be a fan favorite. So I say that with quotes, uh, but, you know, people have loved Leela and, you know, we can't wait to read more about Leela. And now, so Leela has become very, I am so nervous about writing Leela in the second book because I'm like, what golden formula did I use in book one? Because, you know, at that time you have no expectations on you. So you just, you know, and so now there's that. And then there are, you know, a lot of people have enjoyed reading about Astranthia too. And they're like, you know, can't wait to, to dive into the sequel and spend more time in this land. And I'm just like, oh, shoot. <laughs> you know, so just that, that pressure of, the second book and and trying to hopefully match readers' expectations is probably the only the the scarier bit. But it's definitely very cool to get back into writing Ria and Rohan um, and Leela and all of these characters that I've gotten to know so well. They, you know, writing their dialogue also comes out so naturally that like they the way they would respond to a certain situation. Each of them is just you know is I won't say like completely second nature, but I remember the first book, I tried very hard to make Leela and Rhea sound different and behave different during one of my critiques. You know, when you have other people read your book um, in the earlier drafts, you know, someone had said that it was very hard for them to distinguish between the two girls. And I was like, oh, like in my head, they were obviously 
completely different, but for someone reading it on paper wasn't. So, you know, I, I, so that was definitely something I had to really work on in book one. I mean, I feel like I don't have to do as much of that now, but the pressure is definitely there to keep them uh, as true to the, to their characters uh, in book one. I imagine it's still, despite the pressure, a great thing to be able to have the opportunity to, yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> without a doubt. Oh, gosh. Oh, this is a good problem to have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, the uh, the book that you picked as one of your own particular favorite uh, uh, books for young readers is a book that might be familiar to a lot of people, Anne of Green Gables by L.M. Montgomery, which and it was published in uh, originally 1908. Um, for those who haven't yet had a chance to read uh, Anne of Green Gables, can you talk a little bit about what that book is about? Yes. Anne of Green Gables is the story about Anne, um, Anne Shirley, who is an orphan, who's desperately looking for a loving family. And she's had a bit of bad luck on her side. And uh, like we begin this book when an elderly you know, sibling's Marilla and Matthew Cutworth decide to, you know, adopt. Well, they're thinking they're adopting a boy, but in comes Anne, and they decide to keep her. And sh- they they live in this, you know, small little town, uh, and it's just basically following Anne's life as she navigates. Uh, she's she's about eleven, I believe, at this time, uh, is when we start the book. If, yeah, I think she's eleven, it, and it chronicles her journey into. Um, sort of adulthood, but in but the beauty about this book is Anne, and just that the the character that she is. Now, when we think about the fact that this book was written in 1908, and here we have Anne, a character who I read when I was 11, which was I, you know, in the late 90s, I was like, well, mid 90s, and I, I related to her completely. Um, she was an inspiration to me. And I read this book recently as an adult, and I was very hesitant to do so because, you know, sometimes your childhood favorites don't hold up when you read them as an adult. And I was so nervous to do that with Anne because it's just such a cherished part of my childhood. And it held up for me. And that just goes to show the incredible skill and talent of L.M. Montgomery to write a story that is truly relatable 100 years later. And... Anne is just such a breath of fresh air. She is boisterous. She's a tomboy. She has her insecurities. She is not scared about uh, voicing her thoughts. She's imaginative. She is precocious. She wears all of her feelings on her sleeve. She's just, you know, she's just such a, she's a character that I I still find uh, that we don't have enough of uh, and most certainly didn't have enough of when I was 11. And girls are always portrayed to be, you know, these goody two shoes and prim characters. And so, yeah, it's it, it is it's funny. It is humorous. It has, you know, the the reflections and on 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 society. Even back then, you can you fully draw parallels to, you know, our day and age. Uh, each of the characters, from the meddling, nosy, gossipy neighbor to uh, Marilla Cuthbert, who's her adopted mother, and how. You know, and she and and then her brother Matthew to Gilbert Blythe, who, you know, and who is arch enemies with Anne, or rather Anne is arch enemies with, uh, and then eventually they develop a beautiful friendship and a relationship. And Anne's friendship with Diana, which is another thing that I uh, absolutely knew I wanted in my book, was a strong female friendship. And I just love stories where we see the friendship forming. Because there's so many wonderful stories, again, of female friendships, but you already have the best friend, you know, like known from the get-go. Like, this is the main character and that's her best friend. But discovering friendship and building on a friendship is, again, such a beautiful thing to read, such a powerful thing to read. And so I love reading about Anne and Diana, who are, again, so different from each other, and yet they complemented each other so well. And I kind of drew, tried to draw that with Bria and Leela in my book too. So yeah, I just, you know, Anne is just, a, you sh- everybody should read it. I mean, a, a lot of the book, although it does have sort of an overarching story, uh, it's somewhat uh, episodic. It usually involves, uh, you know, a lot of things that were, Anne gets into some sort of trouble and trying to find her way out. Did you have a particular favorite moment where she 
maybe gets in a little overhead and just but finds her way out of it anyway. Yes, I do actually. I, this is just to again, you know, just again remember that this book was written in 1908, where girls were, you know, meant to not be heard. And here we have Anne, who is this, you know, redheaded, wonderfully freckled girl who's who's very sensitive about her freckles and her red hair. Um, she's not what people would call quintessentially pretty. And she she knows that now, you know, as an 11 year old, you discover these things about yourself and start thinking about these things. And um, so in this one particular scene, Mrs. Rachel Lind, who is that, you know, nosy neighbor, decides to make a comment on Anne, uh, Anne's looks. And so she says, She's terribly skinny and homely, Marilla. Come here, child, and let me have a look at you. Lawful heart, did anyone ever see such freckles? And hair as red as carrots? Come here, child, I say. And Anne is so <laughs> angry. Anne came there, but not exactly as Mrs. Rachel expected. With one bound, she crossed the kitchen floor and stood before Mrs. Rachel, her face scarlet with anger, her lips quivering, and her whole slender form trembling from head to foot i hate you she cried in a choked voice stamping her foot on the floor i hate you i hate you i hate you a louder stamp with each assertion of hatred how dare you call me skinny and ugly how dare you say i'm freckled and redheaded you are a rude impolite unfeeling woman Anne exclaimed marilla but Anne continued to face mrs rachel undauntedly head up eyes blazing hands clenched passionate indignation exhaling from her like an atmosphere. How dare you say such things about me, she repeated vehemently. How would you like to have such things said about you? How would you like to be told that you are, a, that you are fat and clumsy and probably hadn't a spark of imagination in you? I don't care if I do hurt your feelings by saying so. I hope I hurt them. You have hurt mine worse than they were ever hurt before, even by Mrs. Thomas's intoxicated husband, and I'll never forgive you for it. Never, never, stamp, stamp. And it was just incredible to read this character who's the main character who's, and there's, you know, Ellen Montgomery writes this with pride, even though later on, you know, Marilla Cuthbert does uh, punish Anne for it and, and, and really give her a talking down saying that she cannot speak to her elders like that. And then she later has to offer up an apology. But even Marilla, who is a very, you know, she she is a woman of few words and she's a very strict woman and minds her manners well, you know, understands where Anne is coming from. It was just so amazing to read this as an eleven year old because there had been plenty of times when, you know, an aunt somewhere made some sort of comment about you or somebody somewhere did. And as a kid, you know, you feel such strong emotions, especially, you know, when you're in that middle school age, I feel like, you know, you're there are little adults in making with this. They see this, the world with newer eyes and a newer comprehension of what's happening. And they have these big feelings and emotions in them. And you often don't get to go off on an event like that. And so just reading that, you just felt so good as a kid. Like, give it, yes, and do it, you know. And again, to think that this was done in 1908, I, can't, I, I, I can only imagine, I mean, the trouble I would have gotten in if I said something like this. Or if my daughter right now, she's three, and she said something like this to a neighbor, no matter how... Uh, at fault the neighbor was, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think that's 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 a good indication of what you find in this book, and it's really great to see Anne, you know, coming into her own and and not compromising on who she is. Yeah, it was a beautiful thing to read. It's interesting there, uh, Anne and her relationship with Marilla. You know, as you say, you know, she's very strict. She's almost the complete opposite of Anne. And at <laughs> yeah. first, she's not really quite sure what to make of it. But their relationship really does grow and becomes very strong. And I don't know what you thought about just just how, in some ways, how Anne changed uh, Marilla, or perhaps didn't change her, but opened her up in no. some way. Yeah, one hundred percent. I couldn't agree more. I think Anne brought out a side of Marilla that did exist in Marilla, but it was just closed off. And, you know, so something that Marilla just didn't realize existed in her. And, and Anne's way of looking at things and the world is just, it's, you know, it's almost on the nose, but it's in a beautiful kind of way. And it, in spite of the fact that it put Marilla in several situations that were, you know, quite awkward for her, it made her see 
the the lighter side of things, the brighter side of things, uh, just the way Anne sees them. And and oftentimes, you know, Anne is not wrong in the things that she she's trying to enforce. The way she goes about doing it is is probably not the proper way to do it. But she's not wrong in calling somebody else out by saying, you know, you, you don't openly call someone ugly and redheaded and, you know, make a snide comment to their face. I think that's mean. That hurts people's feelings. And, you know, no matter how young you are, that you know, so you should your feelings should be minded, and it's it's lovely how she how Marilla comes to see that side, and by the end of it, they're as close as mother and daughter, like real blood mother and daughter. Oh, we were talking earlier with your book and the, the sort of the dual settings and how important setting is for this, and I, I think of of this book, you know, um, how Avonlea is almost another character in the book, and where it's set is so important as well. Yes, and even the way she describes it and and i i wonder if you know that 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 somehow stayed with me because i try to get very descriptive about the location in my books too where it you know the setting becomes this you know background character but very much a character and 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 very much so in uh anne of green gables the woods the the brook the lakes the you know the just of the, the flora is just described so well and, and and there are full paragraphs on it which is written so beautifully that you're just fully immersed in this lovely little town i mean if you look at the very first paragraph of the book that's that's what it is it's just it's an explanation uh, a description of uh lynn's hollow which is where mrs lynn lives and it's just just you know it's it's all about you know an intricate headlong brook uh, that cascades to the woods. It's just, it's just so beautiful. It's, it's a very prevalent part of the story. Now, this is one of those um, books that probably would be char- characterized as a, a girl's book. And I'm wondering, is that fair, or is that even really a bad thing to have a, a book, um, you know, with a particular audience uh, in mind? You know, that's a very, very good question. And perhaps if I was a boy who loved Anne of Green Gables, I'd be able to give a you know, more astute answer. So as a girl reading Anne of Green Gables and you saying it's characterized as a girl's book, I, I, I can't help but agree in a sense. So I get it because, you know, Anne is the main character. Her best friend is Diana. She falls in love with a boy. And so I can see how this appeals to girls. But at the same time, I do think that that's changing now. I feel like Anne of Green Gables will still, you know, continue to be a girl's book. But, but, um, unless a librarian or a teacher or a parent, you know, tells their son to read this book. And again, you know, if the son is interested in reading a book about, you know, the, like a book like Anne, we'd have to see. But I, I thought the same with Rhea, thinking, you know, this is, you know, she's on the cover. A girl is on the cover. Most likely there are going to be more girls reading this. But I found that when a kid goes to pick up a book or is told about a book and especially when it comes to fantasy, I think that the lines are very blurred. Uh, there are, I have had several boys who have read this book and they, you know, they loved reading about Rhea and Rohan and because, you know, most books have both characters in them, like, you know, male and female, irrespective of who's the main character. But then I think when it comes to contemporary books, that might, you know, just the way you have Chiclet, you know, it's it just it's just marketed towards women in terms of, the way they, the colors used on the cover. Like there's so many of those aspects that marketing and the business side of publishing uses to sort of put a book in a particular, you know, target it to a particular audience. But I think with children's literature, it can, it goes both ways it, it, in the current setting of children's literature, especially with fantasy books. Because I know that girls don't look at boy books and go like, I'm going to read that that has a boy on it. I don't, I've never done that. And I don't think it's do that. So I, I think boys don't do that either, but I haven't met a boy, but not that I have met that many young boys um, who have read Adam Green Gables. And I don't know if they would enjoy it as much as a girl would. You know, I, I enjoyed it a great deal, although I did not read it until I was an adult. So I was uh, going to yeah. say that as an adult, everyone should read it. But I don't know if a, if an eleven year old boy would enjoy Anne of Green Gables as much as an eleven year old girl. But I think with the with the books coming out nowadays, um, that isn't the case. 
Now, this is, like I mentioned before, this book was published in 1908, but it's, it's something that's not only just still in print, but there's still, you know, TV shows and movies made about it. So it's still a, a book that people come back to. It is not, uh, and there's not a lot of books from that time, uh, that have existed that long and are still relevant and still meaningful to people even today. So what is it about? This book, I mean, we all hope all of our uh, books can uh, last as long, be that important. So what is it about this book or that, you know, that oh, well, you know, over a hundred years and it's still here and still, um, you know, meaningful? Absolutely. Um, you know, and I should say it's, it is, you know, I would imagine even back then, I mean, this is a children's book that has stood the test of time. This isn't a Pride or Prejudice that, you know, is an adult classic. This is, you know, an 11-year-old kid can read and still connect to it, which is, you know, another added feather in its cap. And I think it's it's because of the characters that Ellen Montgomery has written. They were, each of them, and, and Anne especially, and like I said, even Marilla, even the neighbor, Mrs. Rachel, her best friend, Diana, Gilbert. This book was so ahead of its time because it's a it, it, this book when read is a it is actually a commentary a social commentary on what life is like a slice of life kind of novel where we're looking at these different characters and personalities and it's a coming of age story and she has made the characters so real and and by real I mean again you know wearing their emotions on their sleeve all of them like Marilla is true to her character and the way she reacts to things. And can be, you know, flighty and impulsive and, you know, just loves so greatly and deeply and, and angers so greatly and deeply. And Diana is, you know, she is the prim girl. She And they all exist. And all of us exist. She has shown so many different variations of characters and personalities. And then the other beauty is that, again, this book was written in 1908, but there's so much importance given to, you know, women's education and Showing Anne as a smart, intelligent girl and at par with the boys. And actually, even like, I think she's this, even though she and Gilbert are like rivals academically, and I think she's still smarter than him. Um, and she, you know, at that time, in that age, in that era, she goes to school. She, you know, she gets the Avery scholarship and then she gets admission into a four year college. And this is, incredible to read even today because of you know it's almost comparable to getting into a you know an ivy league college or a very reputed school and putting academics at the forefront and taking pride in being a smart intelligent woman who has career ambitions it is unfortunate that ultimately marilla falls sick and and she chooses to then be with her and take care of her, which is, again, such a beautiful thing considering we've seen them evolve through the course of the book. And another wonderful thing that happens at the end is where Gilbert then give, gives up his position as a teacher in Avonlea so that Anne can get that position and be close to Marilla. And he, as a, as a man, too, appreciates and understands the importance of you know, a woman wanting to make her own, uh, you know, follow her own career. And, you know, everything is not just about getting married and having babies. And uh, that sort of forward thinking, which is, you know, um, in today's day and age, for many of us is like, and well, yeah, of course, you know, as, as women, especially to be like, I, this is, this is definitely what I'm going to do. And, you know, no one better stand in my way. It, that, that wasn't the case in 1908 and to have that shown and, and written so well, I think is what has allowed this book to stand the test of time and will continue to do so because these are struggles that women today still face. You know, even myself, I have a daughter, I have a very have a wonderful husband who's very supportive, but you know, there are social you know, these social roles that we just fall into as husband and wife and mother and father. And of course, uh, you know, we, we, we try and keep, do as much as we can uh, and split the work. But, you know, I mean, as any mother would say, there's just, yeah, we're definitely doing more and, and wanting to do more for our kids and, you know, taking care of them and they need us more. And so the amount of time I have to carve out for writing and uh, working on my book and working on promotions and stuff like that is definitely way harder than what my husband has to do. And so even in, you know, small little things like that, like you, 
I can relate with Anne, I can relate with Marilla. And so I think the fact that Ella Montgomery has such an astute understanding of societal roles and traditions and uh, constraints in that commentary that she makes through the book, and then she has infused it with these dynamic characters and with and then the values that this book promotes for women. All of that put together just makes this an outstanding book that will resonate with readers for a very long time. We've come a long way, but we have a long way to go, so we still need Anne there to inspire yes, us. Yes, we do. We absolutely do, 100%. Well, uh, um, Pyle, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today, both about your own book, uh, Re and the Blood of the Nectar, and giving us a little hint of what to look forward to. I'm certainly looking forward to the next book when it comes out, and for talking to me about um, Anne of Green Gables and why it's still an important book for all of us to read. Well, thank you so much, Jody. I had a fabulous time chatting about both books. Uh, and I always love talking about Rhea, but, you know, Anne has such a special place in my heart. And I can gush about this book for hours and hours. And so thank you for giving me the opportunity to do so. And hopefully uh, we get a few more uh, readers of Anne um, after, uh, after readers have, uh, or listeners have listened to this interview. You can find more information about Payal Doshi at www.payaldoshiauthor.com. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music titled All Together is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art was created through Canva, which can be found at www.canva.com. You can find the Dream Gardens podcast website at jleemott.com and my author website at jodyleemott.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at dreamgardensjlm. The Dream Gardens podcast is available through iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. And until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading. Keep reading.